You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Akeley and Zeeland and Rowan, dear baptized, and all the saints of God, for three weeks now we've been hearing about the demons, and for three weeks we've been considering this, the assault of the devil on the Christian and Jesus' overcoming of the devil. It is, as Pastor Flammy wants to remind us, Christianity is not all rainbows and puppies. (laughs) There is an old evil foe. There are demons who want to destroy us. There is a devil who prowls around like, like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. But page after page in the Scriptures teach us not to be afraid. Not to worry, but rather to rejoice in the triumph of Jesus. That the war against the devil, the war against the kingdom of darkness, has been won. So that when we consider spiritual warfare, we are studying a war that is already over. A war that has a winner. And his name is Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now, to to warm us up, we're going to see if this works. To warm us up thinking about this, I'd like to look at Psalm 46. I think the best way, we didn't read it, so we're going to have to see it together. So I think the best thing is to actually get out your LSBs and flip to Psalm 46 in the front. And we want to look at this together, the picture of spiritual warfare that's given to us there. There's no page numbers on the hymnal. They forgot to put them in, so you just have to look at the Psalms in order. Psalm 46, you'll remember, is the psalm that Martin Luther based his A Mighty Fortress off of, and it gives us this beautiful picture. And as you're flipping there, I want to remind you that the two questions that we want to ask when we go to the psalms are this. Number one, who's talking to whom? And number two, what's the picture? In the psalms, there could be a lot of different people talking to other people. It can be God talking to us, or us talking to God, or us talking to each other, or the church talking to the unbelieving world, or even God talking to God, the Father talking to the Son, or the Son to the Father. So we want to know who's talking to whom. And in Psalm 46, almost all the way through, what we see is it's one Christian encouraging another. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, gives way, or though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. All the way through the psalm, then, it's, it's you and I talking to each other, comforting each other, reminding each other of the victory that the Lord Jesus has won. All the way, that is, until you get to the end to verse 10, when all of a sudden, God is talking to us. And then the last verse, we sing the refrain. So that's who's talking to whom. But the bigger question is, when we look at all the psalms, and this one in particular, is what's the picture? And the picture that Psalm 46 puts before us is this. There is a city that's besieged. Remember how the war went in the ancient world? You had your city, it had its walls, which were good, because then they didn't, the marauders couldn't just come and conquer and pillage and, and burn everything down. So you had walls, but what they would do is the armies would come and they would surround the walls of the city and they would wait it out. You'd run out of food, you'd run out of water, you'd run out of provisions, and things would get nasty until finally you all died or you gave up. Now, the picture of Psalm 46 is a picture of a city under siege, but even though all the enemies of God are gathered around the city and they're stomping and they're pounding and they're yelling that they're going to come and overthrow the city so much 
that it's like the mountains are falling over and the sea is roaring like this, that this city is unmoved, it's unshaken. And the people who are in the city are unmoved and unshaken because God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now, So look how it goes. Pick it up in verse 3 at the top of the page there. Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at the swelling, there's a river in this city whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We are in this city. We are safe. Wonderfully protected. Protected by God Himself, by His Word and by His kindness. Unshaken. Unafraid. But now, look what happened. This is an amazing thing. Because while we're happy being in the city, there's going to be someone who's standing on the city wall, and they're going to say, wait a minute, come up here and look out of the wall, out into the field of battle, and look what's happening. Look at the next verse. Come, behold the works of the Lord. So we run up to the edge of the wall, and we stand on the city, and we see the Lord running out of the midst of the city, and all these armies gathered around the city are just being walloped, one after another, struck down, knocked over, defeated by the Lord Jesus who leaves the city and goes to fight for us. All the way around, he's marching all the way around the city. And one after another, the enemies of the kingdom of God are falling. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariot with fire. And as you're watching him do this, breaking the bow, shattering the spear, burning the chariots, overthrowing the armies, just defeating all of those people who would cause you to be afraid and understand the heavenly hosts of wickedness here who want to destroy the church, as the Lord Jesus is doing this fighting, He turns back and He looks at us and He says, verse 10, Be still. You stand there. Stay put. Don't move. I've got it. Watch this. Know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now this is, the, this is the picture of spiritual warfare. Is that we're standing on the wall of a besieged city and watching the Lord Jesus Himself ride out amongst the enemies and overthrow them. He is the one who holds the field forever. He's our champion and our friend. He's the one who stands between us and our enemies and fights the fight in our place. Do you see it? That's really quite wonderful. And what are we supposed to do? Just be still. It, in fact, it, it reminds me of, of how it was with Aaron and Moses and the children of Israel when they were brought out of the land of Egypt, and there they were at the Red Sea in front of them, and the armies on the north and the army, er, sorry, the mountains on the north and the mountains on the south and the armies of Pharaoh behind them said that they were boxed in and there was nowhere for them to go. And the Lord said to Moses, be still and watch what I will do. 
Our job when it comes to spiritual warfare is not to charge, but rather to stand. To stand and watch what the Lord does. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Remember the armor of God passage? Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, the whole armor of God, that you may able that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and so forth. So that our our work in spiritual warfare is to let the Lord Jesus do the work. He, after all, is the promise, the one promised in the garden to the devil and to Adam and Eve that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He's the devil crusher. He's the devil destroyer. He is the champion. Now, this takes us to Luke 11. Are you warm? You ready for Luke 11? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's doing his devil-crushing work. He's casting out a demon of a mute man, and the mute man speaks, and the people marvel, and they recognize what Jesus has done, but he's always doing this. Jesus is always casting out demons. It's a, when you read through the Bible, you, you, you go from, from, from Genesis to Malachi, and you, you encounter the demons about a dozen times. And then when you take it up about halfway through the book of Acts and you go all the way to the end of Revelation, well, let's take out Revelation. You go all the way to to the end, right before Revelation, you encounter the demons another dozen times. But when you get into the Gospels, page after page after page is full of demons. It's like a locust swarm of demons. And this is how it is, because the demons are drawn to Jesus. They can't help themselves. They're like the June bugs to the porch light. Remember that? They just come after Jesus and they're swarming all around him and he's destroying their kingdom, casting them out, sending them away. And and it's so obvious what's happening that the Pharisees have to come up with a plot to explain it. So they say, how could this possibly be? We don't want to admit that Jesus is God in the flesh. So how could it possibly be that this man is casting out demons like this? And so they come up with a theory and they speak it to the people around it, trying to spread the rumors, breaking the Eighth Commandment. They say that Jesus is able to cast out demons because he himself is possessed by an even greater demon by the name of Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. It's a nickname for the devil himself. So they say the reason why this is happening, I mean, it's amazing that it's happening, that Jesus is rescuing all these people from demons, but the reason why it's happening is because he himself is like the devil incarnate. Now, Jesus is going to take up that argument, and he's going to dismantle it in about four different ways. The first is this. Number one, that doesn't even make sense. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. You guys are fools. Point number two. Your sons cast out demons. Who do they cast them out by? Point number three. I'll give you guys a better explanation. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That actually makes more sense that Jesus is throwing out the demons by the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God is present. And then Jesus tells this parable, this glorious parable of the strong man. He says, a strong man, well armed, 
when he sits over his goods and guards his palace, his goods are safe. But then verse 22, when a stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Now what does this parable mean? When we understand this parable, we've got it. We've got spiritual warfare. Who's the strong man who sits on his house, well-armed, keeping his goods at peace? That's the devil himself. And what is his armor? What does he use to keep us bound and enslaved in his kingdom? Hebrews 2 tells us it's the fear of death, the threat of judgment. But then a stronger one comes. And who is this? Make no mistake, this is Jesus himself. And he comes into the man's house, and he beats the man up, he ties him up, he takes his armor, he throws him in that corner, and he plunders his house. Now, it might be a little bit of a surprise to hear Jesus describing himself like a pirate. <laughs> I mean, like a plundering sort of fella who's going into the house and tying up the owner of the house and tossing him in the corner and taking all of the loot. But that is what Jesus does. He plunders the devil's kingdom. And who is the plunder? Who is the loot? Dear friends, it's you and it's me. We are the ones who are held under the devil's kingdom and Jesus comes to get us, to rescue us, to deliver us, to overpower the strong man because he is the stronger one and to rescue us. Now, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. I want to give you a couple of verses. First, Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These He set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is a picture. This is an amazing picture. Just I maybe shouldn't pause here, but let's pause and think about this. Is that here's all the Ten Commandments, all of God's accusations against you. And Paul says, you know what happened to that accusation? It was put on the cross, and then Jesus' hand was put over it, and then the nail went through the hand of Jesus and through the accusations against you, so that the blood of Jesus washes out those accusations, so that they don't stand, so that God can't read them anymore. He can't read about your guilt because it's covered with the blood of Jesus. That's what it says. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then Paul says this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is the devil and the demons, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. That is, in the cross. So that the death of Jesus, which washes away the accusations against you, sets you free from the devil's tyranny. Here's another text. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, says this, For this reason the Son of God appeared, in order to destroy the works of the devil. That's pretty clear and straightforward. Jesus came for this reason, to plunder the devil's house. James 4, verse 6 and 7, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite verses, it says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Remember what it says next? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Can you imagine it? 
when you resist the devil, he turns and runs. Or Hebrews 2, this is my favorite. Verse 14, Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, we have a physical body, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, became a man, that through death, listen, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that you, by the death of Jesus, are delivered from, from the fear of death. Now, why would, we be, uh, why would we be afraid of death in the first place? Well, I suppose there's the pain of it and there's the unknown of it, but on the, other, on the other side of death, all of us know, one way or another, that there is a judgment that is to come, but not anymore, not, any, not for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so that there is no more fear in death, no, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to make us shake, because God loves us. Now, now it's true that the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion, that the devil is still trying to get after us, that the devil is still trying to destroy us. And so you say, well, how can we say that the devil is destroyed if he's still doing these things? But look, this is the point. The devil's real strength is in his name, Satan. Remember what the word Satan means. It means accuser. The one who accuses us before God day and night. But now, in Christ... There is nothing to accuse. There is no sin left. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you have thought, nothing that you have said, nothing that you have failed to do, not, not a single breaking of God's law that is not covered by the death of Jesus. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no... There's no wrath. There's no bit of evidence that the devil can bring to God against you. Now you say, Pastor, but look, I'm a sinner, and I'm, I'm still a sinner. I sinned yesterday a couple times. Chances are pretty good I'm going to sin tomorrow, maybe even this afternoon, <laughs> maybe even right now. True, you are a sinner, but you have a Savior. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who died for you and who intercedes for you. Now, remember the picture. We've talked about this before. The picture of the heavenly courtroom, where God the Father sits as judge, and the devil comes in there to do his deviling, satan work, and he brings some sin that you've committed, and he brings it before God, and he says, here's evidence for their condemnation. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father, says, objection, that sin is died for. And the Father says, sustained. And the devil runs off to find some other sin and bring it as evidence. But Jesus, our advocate, is there every time. Objection. That sin is covered with my blood. Objection. I already suffered the wrath of God for that sin. Objection. That sin is atoned for. Objection. That sin is propitiated. Objection. That sinner is redeemed. Objection. That sin is washed away in baptism so that there is no, there is no accusation and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None for you, Akeley. None for you, Zealand. None for you, Rowan. None for you, the baptized. None at all. There is no place for the devil to stand before, the, before God and accuse you. 
This is Revelation 12. Do you remember it? The devil comes there standing before the throne of God, but Michael the archangel comes with his angels and with the power of the blood of Jesus and removes him from that place so that you can stand there holy and perfect and dressed in these white robes of the righteousness of Christ. It's absolutely stunning. And that is the victory that Jesus has won for you, and that he has delivered to you in your baptism. In the washing away of sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, you ask, wait a minute, Pastor, if the devil is so defeated, if he's so overcome, like you say, if if his armor's been taken off and he's tied up, hog-tied and thrown in the corner, then why do things look so bad? And why does it seem to us like the world is falling apart? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) We're going to look at Hebrews 2. Remember, Hebrews 2 said that by death, he destroyed the power of the devil. Before that, though, looking back at Hebrews 2, verse 7, we read this. You made him, Jesus, a little for a little while lower than the angels you crowned him with power and glory and honor you put everything under subjection under his feet hebrews continues now in putting everything in subjection to him nothing was left outside of his control including the devil including the demons including the kingdom of darkness all of it is under the feet of jesus But listen to what Hebrews says next. But as of yet, we do not yet see everything put in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord Jesus Christ sits on the throne, but you don't see it, not yet. And he doesn't want you to see it yet. Now, why? I don't know. But the Lord is pleased for us to not see him sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, exalted in his glory. Rather, he wants us to see Jesus made lower than the angels. He wants us to fix our eyes on Christ the crucified. He wants you to see, first, Now, the cross, and later, the glory. Jesus wants to be known by you and by me according to his humiliation before we know him according to his glory. And that, as the Lord wills, is enough for us. It's good. We want to see the devil triumphed over, crushed under the feet of Jesus, And we will, one day. But Jesus now simply wants us to see His cross. We will one day see Jesus in this resplendent glory on our last day or on the last day of the whole world. But now Jesus wants us to know Him according to the gore of His crucifixion. To know that that is His victory. That is his triumph. That is the devil's destruction. 
So let's put a bow on this. Back to the picture from Psalm 46. Remember, you're standing there on the wall and you're watching Jesus go out and He's triumphing all over these armies and He's burning the chariots and He's breaking the bow and He's smashing the spear and all of this sort of stuff. Now, I want, I want you, instead of seeing Jesus triumphing in this way, I want you to come to the wall Come and see the works of the Lord. See how He makes His name known. And you come up to the wall, and instead of seeing this great picture of victory, when you, when you look over the wall, you see outside the city a man hanging on the cross. And His enemies gathered around, triumphing over them, gloating. But you know better. You know the truth of what happens there. That this, this crucifixion, this suffering and death, this is the devil's destruction. That through death He might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And that there on the cross, Jesus is overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. And there on the cross, Jesus is binding the devil so that He would no longer deceive the nations. And there on the cross, Jesus is forgiving your sins and opening and making a way for you to stand before the Father in everlasting life. And Jesus, from the cross, looks up at you watching and he says, be still. Know that I am God. <laughs> I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. May it be so among us. Amen. And the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.